this week's episode, we welcome the United States Capitol Police Chief, John Thomas Manger. John Thomas Manger is the chief of the United States Capitol Police. Um, he's the new chief of the Capitol Hill Police. You know, you see the footage coming into the show. It is fascinating that Capitol Hill Police has become synonymous with the insurrection. The worst insurrection has become somewhat of a political buzzword in reference to January 6th. So let us cut through all the politics in one word, and how would you describe, even though it didn't happen on your clock, you came after, how would you describe what happened that day? It was a riot. Um, the, uh, uh, I, I remember wa I was watching uh, at home, and uh, you know, we, I've been involved in, in hundreds of demonstrations before and protests, lawful and, and unlawful. Um, and this was, uh, this, I think what began as, as at least what the Capitol Police thought was a, was a demonstration um, and ended up turning into a riot. Um, you know, we know that police officers across the country have faced really a major morale crisis since the summer of 2020 and the rise of the defund and abolish the police movements, has that had an impact on you and your officers? I think it, it's had some impact on the morale of a lot of folks who have chosen law enforcement for their profession. And I certainly um, was disheartened uh, by this notion of that we should defund the police, that you know there were too many police, and that um, and the fact that some people felt um, like uh, they they couldn't be safe around police. I mean, all that uh, bothered me, and and you know, having dedicated my life to this profession for as long as I have. Um, but the the good news is is that at the U.S. Capitol, I don't think anybody um, uh, really embraced that defund the police movement and because in fact um, uh, especially post January 6th uh, Congress has given us uh, a great deal of of funding for the things that we've needed to make the improvements that we need to make. Whom do you hold accountable for not having the proper personnel uh, and the proper procedures in place that day to prevent January 6th from happening because I live on Capitol Hill and I will tell you now if there's any a protest, or any event, the wires go up, um, the bars go up, their law enforcement is everywhere. It is unthinkable that someone would even think of um, being a part of that again. What, you know, what have we learned from that? Well, I, you know, uh, there's plenty of blame to go around. Uh, and in fact, uh, so many of the uh, after action reports that were done, uh, and there were numerous that were done, uh, they pointed out uh, the failures and the deficiencies in in the Capitol Police Department's preparation and their response. And so uh, there were uh, certainly the, the congressional leadership held um, the, uh, the leadership of the Capitol Police and the, and the uh, Capitol Police Board um, accountable for those failures. And, and because you look at the day after uh, January 6th, the police chief was was gone. Both sergeant of arms were gone, and um, and in fact there were uh, other folks in leadership positions that decided to retire or or left uh, for one reason or another. 
So there was plenty of blame to go around at that point. And, um, and, and I understand that because what happened uh, was, in fact, uh, as, I, as I look back and I see the after-action reports, read them, I've been uh, in this position now for nearly nine months, so I've had a chance to assess uh, what we did and what needs to be improved. And so you, know, you, can, you can look at things like um, the way we ran our intelligence division, uh, the, uh, the operational planning process that we had, uh, just the fact that we sent officers out there without the equipment that they needed. Uh, those are, those are you know, all things that are, uh, needed to be fixed. And in fact, um, we've, we've gone, I think, a long way so far. Uh, there's still work to be done, but we've gone a long way in improving uh, those aspects and, and other deficiencies that were identified. Now, what role does the Speaker of the House and Senate Majority Leader and the Minority Leaders from the House and the Senate have in the operations and the work of the Capitol Hill Police? I mean, other than creating and funding the Capitol Hill Police's budget, do these political officers set your priorities for law enforcement? No, they don't. And, and in fact, um, I've been there, uh, again, uh, nearly nine months. Uh, I have never had anyone tell me, this is, this is the way we want you to run the police department. They've given me the authority to, to uh, run the department, to make decisions about um, how the department is going to progress and to set goals and, and uh, to, to, in fact, make improvements. And, and let me say this, we, we have plenty of oversight. We have uh, several committees that provide oversight to the Capitol Police Board, several oversight committees that provide oversight to the Capitol uh, Police, and, uh, and they certainly do their job. So I get, I get a lot of input, a lot of questions about what we're doing, but um, in, in terms of, of any of the congressional leadership on either side of the aisle, nobody's telling me how to do my job. You know, in connection with the January 6th prosecutions, you know, a successful defense against the claims of trespass and unauthorized occupation of the Capitol is that the Capitol Hill police invited people in and directed their way. Is that true? Uh, not, not that I could see. Now, now I will tell you this. The, the numbers of folks that were um, uh, that had the desire to to breach the Capitol and to get in there unlawfully, um, they overwhelmed the numbers of uh, police officers that we had there. So uh, there were times when folks um, were able to just walk right past, uh, you know, a couple of police officers to to get into the Capitol, walk walk around the barricade and weren't stopped. But that was because the, the, uh, of the, the operational planning was not what it should have been. Um, certainly the, the resolve and the courage of the men and women of the Capitol Police was present and was there. Um, but they just were overwhelmed in terms of the numbers. So I think some people, it, in order to uh, defend themselves, say, well, nobody stopped me from walking in. Well, that's true in, in a number of cases. But there were, uh, th it, that was only because of the sheer numbers of people that were um, uh, trying to get in and the numbers of officers that were trying to keep them out. You know, often we focus on the impact that January 6th had on the country, those that participated, but rarely do we talk about the continued fallout that it has on Capitol Hill police officers to this day. 
in terms of your losing officers and personnel, that there's a shortage, and some still remain traumatized by it. That's, that's all true. Um, you know, there, there, a couple of things. One, um, even before January 6th, we had the pandemic. And so we had, for, for 10 months, in the year 2020, for 10 months, our Federal Law Enforcement Training Center down in, in Georgia was closed. So we were unable to get any new recruits um, through uh, training in 2020, or very few. Uh, be, and so add to that, January 6th happens, and we have, I think it was about 140, 150 officers just leave the department after January 6th. They either retired or they resigned, um, you know, but they just left because they did not want to do this job anymore. And so um, you, you've got the combination of not being able to get new recruits through in 2020 and then this, uh, this attrition that we had with really almost double the number of people that mm. would typically leave in, in, in a year, we had nearly double that. So we found ourselves very understaffed, which resulted in officers being held over um, uh, on their shift, found they were forced to work overtime hours. I mean, look, cops like to work overtime, but not to the point where they aren't seeing their family, where they're getting their days off canceled. And this is the kind of thing that was occurring. So you had officers that were not only physically hurt uh, on January 6th, but you had uh, folks that experienced real um, emotional trauma as well. And uh, so we have spent a great deal of time and effort making sure that we are giving the officers the, the help that they need uh, to overcome their injuries and to, for those that um, uh, needed time to get back to work that we you know, help them uh, to give them the resources and the, and the treatment that they needed so they could get back to work. How has the um, equity, um, diversity, and inclusion, which is, is known as EDI, movement impacted the Capitol Hill Police? Well, it's the same way it's impacted every police department in this country. Um, I think that uh, best practice is to ensure that um, the, the police department represents the community it serves. So, you know, I, for, uh, for many years, I was the police chief in two um, large jurisdictions in the D.C. area, and we would always be uh, measured by, you know, in terms of the diversity of our uh, police department, uh, whether it was racial, gender, um, uh, ethnic diversity, did it match the community that we were serving? Because the, this notion was that it, it, that you should represent and be a cross section of the community that you're serving. Well, uh, in, uh, with the Capitol Police, first of all, we we in fact um, are doing very well, I think, in terms of our uh, diversity, and and it's not just not just race, not just gender. Uh, but just um, uh, just about any category you can think of, um, and one of the most important things is I, one of the most important things I think of is is the diversity of thought, where you have different perspectives, you have, have folks in, with different life experiences um, that you, that are bring, all bringing something to this job. So uh, I think it's it's impacted us the same way it's impacted every police department in the country. You want to make sure that you have um, uh, a a police department that represents the community that you're serving. You know, um, I guess served as the chief of police for 15 years for Montgomery County, Maryland. He served as the chief of police 
for Fairfax County in Virginia. And now he's chaired, he serves as chief of police for the United States Capitol. Obviously, when you think of the Capitol Hill police, you don't really think about homicide or petty theft. You think about protecting the Capitol, mm -hmm. protecting the 535 members. But what has changed for you in all your 43 years of experience in law enforcement that is desperately needed? I think one of the things that has changed is that the public uh, demands accountability from not only from their police departments, but they demand accountability from government in general. And I can recall back um, when I first began as a police officer back in the mid-70s, and, um, and not that, I mean, I wasn't a chief, I was just a, a, a street officer and I was responding to calls for service, and there was, there was much more hesitancy by not only the media, but just the general public to demand answers. Too often the police department said, well, this is the way we do it. You know, they'd ask about a particular case, about a particular investigation, have questions about it, and the police would say, you know, well, look, we know what we're doing. Um, you know, this is the way we do things. Today, that just would not go. Um, you know, the, the public, the media um, demand answers from their police about, you know, what are you doing? How are you doing it? What's your policy? What's your training? All of these questions, and I think that's good. Um, I, I think that the public has a right to know um, how their police department is doing their job. They have a right to ask questions when they have concerns about what a particular police department is doing. And, and look, I, I, I wouldn't be in this profession for as long as I've been in it if I didn't believe in what we do. And I believe that, w that police officers, 99.9% .9 of them are out there to do the job the way it should be done. But in fact, um, you do have police officers that, that do make mistakes. You, have you do have a, a very small portion of police officers who actually engage in wrongdoing. And today, the way those things are handled, I think is much, uh, uh, I think it's much more accountable than it ever was when I started. You know, I always assume that law enforcement officers with your success uh, are not the type that go looking for new opportunities. So I was just very curious as to whether you um, offered yourself as the head of the Capitol Hill Police Unit while they were looking, or were you approached by congressional or federal law enforcement and offered the position? Well, I, I um, uh, was called by the, the search firm that was doing the search for the Capitol Police uh, Chief. And uh, they had been hired by the, the Capitol Police Board to, uh, to assist in the search. And they called me, and I, I remember uh, when they called me, and I had just retired uh, a, a short time uh, from the Montgomery County Police after 15 years, after you know 42 years of, of working, I thought, decided, well, try retirement. Um, and uh, when they called me, I said, um, you know, I, I, I'm sure you can find somebody that is, you know, that can do this job. I said, I, I don't know, I, you know. And they said, well, will you just think about it? And I said, I'll think about it. So they called me um, uh, about a month later and said um, that uh, we really are, we really would like you to, you know, throw your hat in the ring for the job. Uh, we think you'd be uniquely qualified. And, I, and they looked at the fact that I had, for, you know, over 40 years I'd been a police officer in the Washington metropolitan area. Um, I had been the chief of two large departments. I knew the D.C. area 
quite a bit and, um, had, and, and had relationships with all of the police chiefs here. I mean, I knew them all. They were all friends of mine. I had their cell phone numbers. I mean, I, you know, and they said, you could hit the ground running because you've got the relationships established. And so um, I, I, um, uh, and I, I, I recognized that um, the department, uh, you know, I guess I thought that I could offer something in terms of, with my experience, that I could offer something to the department in terms of helping them get back on track, make the improvements that needed to be made. And um, so I ended up uh, uh, throwing my hat in the ring for the job and um, ended up getting it. You know, um, you certainly have your hands full at this point in your long and successful law enforcement career. What do you see? as the most pressing problem you face in rebuilding the public trust after the January 6th events? You know, and, 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 and you know, one question that I often hear as a broadcaster continues to sizzle within the public. The fatal shooting of Ashley Babbitt um, by a plainclothes Capitol Police officer as she attempted unarmed to climb through a window in a public area of the Capitol continues to fester among some in the nation. Perhaps it sounds simplistic, uh, Chief Manger, but Ms. Babbitt's family, along with many police officers and citizens around the nation, remain appalled that a young woman was shot dead by a police officer for trespassing in a public building, supposedly the people's house that they pay taxes on. We welcome your thoughts. So, um, of course, that was investigated before I got there. Mm -hmm. The Department of Justice um, did their investigation, um, cleared the, the officer of any wrongdoing. Um, but but the, your question really goes to officer-involved shootings um, in general. And that is, um, you rarely, anywhere, have uh, total agreement or total consensus from folks that have differing points of view when they look at they can they can look at the same video they can look at mm -hmm. this you know the same facts and circumstances and come to different conclusions and this is what I think has um, has been an issue for law enforcement for many many years um, is that you'll have a shooting that is lawful it's justified it's within policy but then somebody will say, well, but was it necessary? Is that the only option left for that officer was to, was to use deadly force? And so um, th this, is, this is the question that the public asks. And um, so, again, the, the, you know, whether it's the shooting that occurred at the Capitol that day or whether, you know, it was George Floyd or, you know, any other of the shootings around the country that have gotten notoriety, there are always people that have differing opinions. And the bottom line is um, the, that uh, the Supreme Court has, has said that, um, that officers can use deadly force if their lives or the lives of someone else are in uh, danger, you know, in peril, uh, whether it's death or serious bodily injury. I mean, that's, that, that, that the court has uh, very clear language about when officers can use deadly force. And so you look at each individual situation and it's up to uh, the courts, it's up to the, uh, the investigators, in this case the Department of Justice, to decide did in fact um, uh, the shooting meet that, uh, meet that threshold. You know, we, we must also acknowledge though, and, and, I, and I 
really f f appreciate your passion, passion in these answers, is that the last thing a law enforcement officer wants to do, no matter what department of city they work for, is shoot someone. But you know, they're in this situation where they feel their lives are threatened, they're human, I know they're, they're trained. And sometimes when these shootings happen, often the media focus goes from the criminal behavior, the criminal intent, and they indict law enforcement. This, this is, um, uh, and this certainly has been a change in, in, that I've seen in, in the span of my career, um, that oftentimes people start off with, well, why did it have to happen, as opposed to, um, well, you, you know, assuming that the officers did the right thing. But I get that. I get that there's lots of folks in the public that don't trust the police. They don't. And it's, their, it's based on their life experience. It's based on the experience that they've had with law enforcement. That they, so they have, they have earned, the, the, they have earned their, uh, the opinions that they have about law enforcement through their lo own life experience. And so uh, you, as we train law enforcement officers, we, we have to um, instill in them the, uh, the responsibility that they have because, look, as a cop, you know, we, that's the one profession where we can actually take away somebody's freedom. Um, that is, we can, at least temporarily. I mean, you know, we, we, we determine, we have probable cause to believe someone's committed an offense, we put handcuffs on them, take them to jail. What we have to instill in our officers is just how, um, uh, how, uh, I guess, important that responsibility is. That it, and it is not to be, um, it's not to be abused. Uh, that if you, when you make decisions about enforcing the law, They've got, to be, they've got to be made for the right reasons. And, and give them the training. Say, look, here's things that, that you can consider when you're uh, uh, determining whether you're going to make an arrest in a situation or not. Here's the kind of things you can consider. And here's the kind of things that you can't consider and that, that would, it would make it an unlawful arrest. And so I think that, that it's, whether we're talking about use of force or whether we're talking about um, uh, making an arrest, I think so much of it relies on two things, or three things. One, hiring the right person in the first place. You know, you, you, not everybody's suited to be a police officer. You want to hire somebody that's got the right character traits, the right integrity um, uh, the, to, to do the job. Secondly, you've got to invest in their training throughout their career. You do it at the beginning of their career and all throughout their career. And then the third thing is you've got everybody has to be held accountable, from the police chief all the way down to every single police officer on the department. We've got to be held accountable for what we do. And if you do those three things, you're going to have a pretty good police department. You know, it's, it's fascinating that you say that, because in your 43 years as a law enforcement officer and chief in many of those years, you've not had those kind of issues. Because if you had those issues, you're not promoted from chief to chief than the chief of the Capitol Hill Police. What is it that people can take from your life because you face everything they face. You've seen everything they face. You have been there. Is it a new generation of officers that have less of the training, less of the commitment? Uh, what is it? Is it a generational issue? What is different today? What's different today is um, that if you don't do the right thing, if you are not doing the right thing, and I'm talking about globally, that you're not policing in the right, uh, in a lawful fair, consistent manner, if you're not treating everybody with respect and, and dignity, um, if, you're, if you're not enforcing the law fairly, 
um, people are going to call call you out on it. And I think so. Today, the key is that look, mistakes are going to happen. You're going to have you're going to have bad the occasional bad cop, and you're going to have good cops that make mistakes. The key is how do you respond to that? What do you do about that? And this this the years are, and and the time when you know years ago when you know the thought would be well how do we cover this up you know how or how do we investigate this and sort of just you know say well you know well we looked into it and you no know, everything's okay and not have to answer the tough questions about well how did you come to that conclusion today you've got to be more transparent and we've got to hold people accountable and I think that um, and and I certainly have you know in in my 20 plus years as a police chief. I have had to deal with um, questionable shootings. I've had to deal with officers that, that have engaged in criminal misconduct. I've had to deal with a lot of really bad situations. But um, so my job was do the right thing. You know, uh, hold people accountable. Um, you know, do a, 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 an accurate, fair, lawful investigation. And, uh, and so if you, I don't think anybody expects you to be perfect, but they expect you to do the right thing um, you know, when when things don't go right, that you uh, that you acknowledge it, and that you do what has to be done to fix it. You know, talk about, and I would like for you to do this in great detail. The role of Capitol Hill Police in our nation's capital, so people can really understand the difference between the United States Capitol Police. You got the Metropolitan Police. You got the FBI. You got the CIA. But your role and the role of your officers as United States Capitol Police? So that's a great question because our role is unique. There are 18,000 police departments in this country, 18,000. There's only one that does what we do. And we protect the Capitol, we protect the members of Congress, we protect the legislative process. That is, we make sure that the business of government can happen. And so we've got to, we've got to provide a safe environment for that to happen in where we've got, I mean, we've got 20, 30,000 people on our Capitol campus every day. We've got um, uh, protests and demonstrations that go on our campus every day. We have people, the, 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 um, the Capitol uh, is, is one of the few buildings, uh, in, in, few government buildings where a member of the public can walk down the sidewalk and look at it and say, you know what, I want to go in that building and I just want to look around. And it's one of the few government buildings you can actually do that. And so we are very unique in, in terms of, of our responsibilities. And so, you know, providing protection, I mean, you know, we, we, there's more threats against Congress today than there have ever been uh, in, in, our, in our history. And so making sure that we deal with these threats against members of Congress, that we keep them safe, that we make sure that the government process goes on, that we protect folks that come to the Capitol because they want to protest and have their voice heard, that we give them that right, allow them to exercise their First Amendment right. Um, all of those things, we protect those folks' rights, we protect the Capitol, uh, and we make sure that it remains the people's house. But how do you also protect the Capitol grounds and also protect everyday citizens' ability to have access, to enjoy, not just the perimeter, but being able to, to enjoy what's inside that building that you protect, because so much of that has changed now. Oh, it has, it has absolutely changed. And Armstrong, that conversation goes on every single day at the Capitol. How do we balance 
the, you know, keeping the, the campus safe, keeping the building safe, keeping the staff safe, the members safe, uh, and still allow the public to have access. Uh, the, the, I'll tell you, I've spoken to many congressmen who've said, I want my constituents to be able to come to this Capitol and come in to meet with me. And, uh, you know, just to come in and see me, to, to voice their concerns, you know, I have to serve my constituents. So we do need to find that right balance. And I think for us, I mean, it's one of the reasons that we have uh, the number of police officers that we, that we have, because first of all, it's a big building, it's a big campus, and there's lots of activities that go on. And when you have 535 members of Congress, all of whom have folks that want to come see them, we've got to make sure that's done in a safe manner. So yes, we, we screen people when they come in. We, you know, we have the, the Capitol uh, Visitor Center where folks can come in and get tours. Um, so all of those things, we work with um, all of the other folks at the Capitol to make sure that, um, that all of the activities that go on there are, do, are done in a safe environment, as safe as we can make it. And, you know, I, I mean, we all see the, you know, the occasional story when, I mean, I wasn't there for, um, but, uh, but a few weeks when we had an individual pull up and, and uh, uh, in front of the Supreme Court and says, said, uh, I have an explosive. I was and, there. Yeah. We covered, I was and, there. And, um, and it was the Library of Congress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was between the, yeah, the between court two, and, yeah, and yeah. the Library of Congress. And so we, um, so, you know, we, you know we, we have to deal with those kinds of situations, um, and we have just have to deal with the everyday sort of problems where, when you have thousands of people on a campus, you're just going to occasionally have, have issues. And um, so, uh, th though, but, but finding that right balance, you know, to the, the answer to your question, we've got to find that right balance. And may I tell you that uh, I get input from folks, from staff, from members, from my own folks about what that right balance should be. And we've yet to come to a consensus on that. So I've got to uh, ultimately make the decisions about, okay, how are we going to make, you know, keep things as safe as we can, but ensure that folks have access to this building? You know, you know, I, you know, I, I just, it just made me realize, and it's just so obvious, um, you had to be just as devastated by what happened on January 6th because of your own credibility, the trust that you have to protect that building, and that is your most important role and to watch that footage and to believe that could have happened had to be devastating for you and many of your officers. So I was, um, you know, I, of course, I, I was not the Capitol Police Chief on January 6th, but I, I you know, I was, I was actually working in another room and I heard some commotion on TV and I went out and um, it was on one of the 24-hour news channels and I was watching what was going on in real time. And uh, I will tell you that I was alternately angry. I was in tears. Um, but just watching uh, police officers get assaulted like that had a very personal impact on me. And, um, and it was the first time since I had, I'd only been retired a short time, but it was the first time uh, since I had retired that I thought, I wish I wasn't retired. I wish I was still a cop. I wish I was there, uh, you know, to help in any way I could. So you must have seen it shortly thereafter when you were offered the position as a clarion call. Um, I did. I, I, it's, it, uh, it sounds corny, um, but one of the things that the um, search firm said to me, the individual that I was speaking with, they said, you know, your country needs you. And as corny as that sounds, um, uh, it meant something to me because I, um, 
I just having watched what went on there that day, and um, and believing that I could I could uh, I, that my experience might be able to help the department um, that did uh, that did resonate with me. So it was a um, I have, certainly have no regrets um, taking this job, and and uh, we've gotten a lot of good things done already, but there's still a lot of work to be done. But you know, also since then, um, a someone came through a barricade and one of your officers were killed. Um, you think many people realize the threat that the U.S. Capitol face every day and law enforcement face every day? What you have to deal with, the sort of whether you give maximum a minimum attention, whether the threat is serious or not? I, I don't think that many members of the public quite understand that. Um, we're we get we get intelligence briefings every single day on ongoing threats, on specific threats that you know are are, are you know in real time. Uh, we have had, as you mentioned, we had um, Officer Billy Evans w was killed by a person that came in um, and uh, this and, and, and 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 ran him over yeah. and uh, and and killed him. We've had uh, officers that were uh, at, a, at the, the congressional baseball practice. Um, uh, we had an officer shot. Um, we, we've had uh, uh, members that have been shot uh, doing events, uh, Gabby Gifford, um, years ago. And so we understand those threats can happen without notice. And so how, again, this goes back to your question about how do you find the balance. We have to provide for a safe environment for everybody, the public who's visiting there, the staff that work there, the members. Um, we have to f provide that security, but not treat everybody like they're a threat. And that's, that's tough sometimes. Um, and it's because you have officers that are, are certainly um, always thinking about and always looking, you know, watching, what was, watching what's going on. Um, they have specific, uh, you know, responsibilities, you know, at, at screening points. You've got other officers that are patrolling the campus that are looking for, you know, any suspicious behavior, anything that might be a threat. Uh, so it's, you know, one of the most difficult things is to make sure that your officers and, and you know, to a person, and I think a lot of people would say this, they, who, have, who have frequent contact with the Capitol Police. They are a courteous bunch. Yes, they are a courteous and respectful bunch. They always, you know, have, uh, you know, a pleasantry for folks. They're, um, but at the same time, they're constantly looking for th threats. So how do they balance that, you know, that, that welcoming uh, demeanor uh, and, you know, but still make sure that they're not, you know, that they're not, they're going to stop something uh, that might be a threat from happening. It's tough. It is not an easy job. And think of, and and think about having to do it for eight hours. You can't let your attention lapse. You got to do this for eight hours, and then you got to come back and do it again tomorrow and the day after that. It's tough. Who should the D.C. National Guard report to? Well, the, the D.C.'s National Guard should report to the to the general who's in charge of the National Guard. But I think um, uh, the issue for the Capitol Police is. Who has the authority to request them? Yes, and um, that was a real 
complicated issue, and there were, again, it was a topic in many of the after-action reports about, you know, who called, uh, you know, who, and then what happened after they called, and, you know, was there a delay, all these kinds of things. And again, I wasn't there, so I'll leave that to the folks that did the after-action report. But what I can tell you is that one of the things that came out of it was that um, Congress said, we believe that the police chief at the U.S. Capitol should be able to have the authority to make that call. And, uh, and they, they passed a resolution that now allows me to, uh, to make that call. And, I, and in fact, I have on a couple of occasions. And explain why that call is so important. Well, um, look, th th there are occasionally going to be events that occur at the Capitol that, in fact, require more uh, assistance than I can have. And, I, and let me, or that I have. So let me, let me tell you, this is, this is where my experience, I think, um, you know, has helped me. When I first became the police chief in, in Fairfax County in 1998, that was about the same time that a man named Chuck Ramsey arrived in, in, in Washington, D.C. to take over the, the Metropolitan Police Department. And the first time that um, uh, Chief Ramsey had to deal with an inauguration, that he had to deal with a World Bank protest, um, you know, that, that brought in tens of thousands of people, even with all the folks that he has in, in, in uh, D.C., he said, we need help. And he called me and, and when I was in Fairfax County. He said, can you send us, um, you know, a couple of, of uh, platoons of, of trained civil disturbance officers? And, um, and I said, yes, we can. And I sent over, I think I sent over about 150 officers to D.C. And he called Prince George's and he called Montgomery County. He called a number of jurisdictions around the Beltway and said, can you all help us for this event? And it was the first time we'd ever done that in, in hmm. the metropolitan area. And it was Chuck Ramsey that, that did it. Well, that started something that has lasted uh, since then. And so it is now routine that police chiefs reach out to other jurisdictions to get assistance if they have an event that is larger than, than what they could typically handle. And so uh, we do it routinely. And uh, when I looked at January 6th and I was watching it on TV, I said, why, why, isn't there, why aren't there other departments there to help? And eventually they did show up. But, you know, that planning wasn't done ahead of time to get a, a, that assistance. And that brings us to your question about the National Guard. And so uh, the National Guard is, a, is an asset that, uh, and a resource that we can call on if we need additional assistance in protecting the Capitol. And, uh, I, you know, we've, uh, I've, I've called them a couple of times um, and basically just had them on standby. I actually, um, when the trucker's convoy, the trucker's convoy was, was um, talking about coming, you know, driving around D.C., um, I actually called out to my our partners around the Beltway, and they said, "Well, look, they, you know, we think they're going to try and you know uh, disrupt traffic on the Beltway. We're not sure we can send our cops downtown, you know, if we've got problems on the Beltway." Completely understand that. So, um, so we contacted the National Guard and said, "Hey, if we need additional officers to help us on traffic posts, um, you know, could we get your assistance?" Because this is, you know, th this was over the course of several weeks, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so we knew we needed additional people. So the fact that I, had the, that I have the authority to make those calls to the National Guard is critically important. Uh, and, and, and look, I shouldn't be calling them unnecessarily. 
and, um, and, and they certainly will, will ask a lot of questions about, okay, what is exactly that you need? How long do you need us? What, you know? and, and so those are, these are good conversations that are, that are absolutely necessary to have. But the fact is, there, in the future, there will be no delay. If I need the National Guard, there's no delay in terms of my ability to call them. So you also make the decision when the barriers go up around the Capitol, depending on the event? Um, I make recommendations to the Capitol Police Board, but ultimately I, I have a lot of, uh, I have a fair amount of influence about what, what happens. And look. Well, I think what you just explained explains why you have to make those decisions. Yeah, it's, it's so. Yes, it's, I think it's understood. But I know that folks don't like the fence to go up. I don't like the, the fence going Nobody up. Nobody does. I don't like Nobody it. It's my neighborhood. In, including, I hate it. Including me. Yes. And, and, and you know, living in, in, people that live in the neighborhood yes. look at the Capitol grounds as their park. It's like the, that's where my they go. neighborhood, my home, yes, my yard. We go. We people go running through there, exercising through there. They walk their dogs through there. They ride bikes. They take. I, we have kids, uh, you know, being pushed in strollers every day. Hundreds of them, thousands of them, going, you know, uh, 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 throughout our campus. So people don't like it when the fence goes up. I don't like it when the fence goes up. Um, the, we've we had it up. Uh, uh, we've had it up twice since I've been the chief here, and it was up one day. And came down. The that next. is true. It is and true. so it was, you know, right after the sixth, as you know, it stayed up for months. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm always going to be very judicious about um, recommending that the fence go up. Uh, in fact, the, at the State of the Union address, um, I think it was really out of an abundance of caution. Um, and the Secret Service, you know, um, uh, had had recommended that that you know, and, and I spoke with the Secret Service about it. So we made the decision to put it up for the State of the Union. But again, it came, it came down right the next down, day. like 4 a.m. in the morning. There's, you know, um, where did you grow up? I grew up in Baltimore City. Baltimore City. Yes. Wow. Was your father involved in law enforcement? No, nobody in my family uh, was was prior law enforcement. Um, I I grew up. Um, in, in the city and um, saw a lot of, you know, growing up you see a lot of, of uh, things that just felt unjust, you know, and you saw, you saw problems, you saw, um, I don't know, I, I, I really had a sense that there was uh, much of the, the, you know, that there were, um, there was a lot of hopelessness in the city uh, where folks thought, you know, what chance do I have? And, you know, I, I was very glad that my, my folks encouraged me to, you know, to go to college and because and, neither one of my parents had, had gone to college. And so they, uh, it just, um, I, I started off, I wanted to be uh, a, um, a newspaper reporter because of Woodward and Bernstein. Because right around the time that I was, I was in, exactly, right around the time that I was in high school and college, Watergate was going on, and I was riveted every day. I couldn't wait to read the paper to see what, you know, what was going on. And I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to shine the light on wrongdoing. I want to shine a light on injustice. That's what I want to do. And so uh, I um, very, and, and I guess as I was in, in school, in college, uh, I sort of evolved, you know, from journalism to social work. And then, and then I took a, a criminology class, and I thought, well, this is really interesting. And, and so Ultimately, I decided that uh, maybe being a police officer was the best way that I could that I could save the world one you know one case at a time or one you know one call at a time and and uh, and, and and I was I'm very fortunate. It's funny I tell my children now, uh, who are both you know uh, at that age that they have to start thinking about what they want to do with their life. And I said, look, 
pick some, you know you may not know you know when you're when you're 18 or 20 what you want to do but eventually you'll figure it out i was so fortunate the first job i got was to, as a police officer in uh in fairfax county and i loved it and i i was just very fortunate in, in picking a career that was right for me what are your thoughts on permissive bail laws you know um in criminal justice, over my 40-plus years, I've seen the pendulum swing back and forth on everything, on police tactics, tough on crime, you know, soft on crime, um, you know, and the, the, the bail reform now is just another one of those sort of pendulums that go back and forth, and we're doing it at a time when we're seeing a spike in crime a spike in violent crime in most of our cities. And um, I, I, I look at bail reform, I look at some of the uh, prosecutors that have been elected into office, you know, that have a different sort of uh, take on how, what should be prosecuted and how it should be prosecuted. And, and uh, I, I just, I worry that, um, w that, you know, is it in fact, and, and I'll leave this for people that are smarter than I am, researchers, but I worry that some of the decisions that have been made about criminal justice reform, which some of them are, are great, and, and I, am, I fought for them as a police chief, and I will continue to fight for a lot of the police reforms that, uh, that I believe are necessary. But when you start um, making, people make decisions about, okay, we've arrested this person for, for a violent crime, but we're not gonna hold him in jail. You know, does that in fact, add to the um, uh, to the crime rate does it in fact make our communities less safe when we're not holding folks that have committed violent crimes in jail before their trial and and again people on both sides of that issue we can debate it but I, I think that um, we need to uh, we need to look at that to see if it is, is in facting our uh, the increase and in spike we're seeing in crime you know as a chief when you think back what happened on the New York train platform and people were randomly shot, thank God no one died. What message does that send to a chief? That um, you can, that with all the prevention work that you try and put into place, um, it, the, the lone wolf, the lone actor who wants to do harm is the most difficult thing to prevent. And in fact, uh, on any given day, you could, um, uh, you, you know, any, any community could have something like that occur, and it's tragic. And we see it all over the country. And so, um, it's, you know, uh, the, and I will, I will credit the NYPD and, and so many police departments around the country, when they do have these kinds of, of uh, violent acts, um, they have everything in place to respond to them quickly, to uh, process the evidence, and to make an arrest. Because and, and, the case up in Brooklyn, if that, if that individual had not been taken into custody um, as quickly as he was, think about, how, think about the level um, or the sense of safety that the that, uh, folks that commute on the subway every day would have. That many of them would say, I'm not, until they catch this guy, I'm not going to work. I'm not getting on the train again. And, and I mean, I read some quotes for, uh, in some of the, the uh, newspaper stories about people saying, I'm not going to take the subway anymore. But the fact of the matter is, 
um, they caught this individual and um, it did, I think, you know, uh, help alleviate um, uh, some of the fear that, that, you know, folks have about using the subway and, and, you know, they got back on and used it, you know, the next day. But again, as a police chief, believe the public's looking to you to restore their sense of safety. So you better, you better have everything in place that you need to do that. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. 